0: Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. I going to backed off, <laughs> but that ain't racing. Gave it all I could. I didn't leave nothing laying on the table. Tuck it all the way into the racetrack. Lord, if you just
1: get me back these five thousand miles, I gotta go and get me back home. I promise you one thing: I won't be back. Don't you ever forget, I'm a daddy too.
2: Well, you should have seen it, uh, Rick, right from my side. From that ride back from Darlington, from that day forward, I made it my life's commitment to do whatever I had to do to become a Winston Cup rider.
0: Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, where the numbers 43, 3, 24, 48, 11, and 00 are the pick six numbers every week. <laughs> Well, I could not agree more. (laughs) Now, if somebody actually plays that, Steve, and they win, they are obligated to help us pay to digitize all these newspapers. By all means. (laughs) Steve, this week, I had a great, great conversation with Jeff Bodine. Mm -hmm. And in this episode, he's going to be talking about... The formation of Hendrick Motorsports. Okay. He's also going to share another couple of Harry Hyde stories. (laughs) (laughs) And they may or may not be even better than Buddy Parrott's Harry Hyde stories. (laughs) And Steve, in our second segment, with the Cup Circuit traveling out to California Speedway this week, we're Mm going to talk about another Southern California Super Speedway. Do you know which one it is? Oh, I'm guessing it's Ontario Motor (laughs) Speedway. (laughs) Yes, sir. And we're going to talk about the 1980 season finale in which Dale Earnhardt tried his best. (laughs)
1: His, His level best.
0: He tried his best
1: to give away the championship. I thought the whole thing was over for Dale. I said, a man can't get this far back in a race and try to win a championship.
0: Oh, yeah. It was all over but the singing. But somehow, someway, he managed to pull it out of the fire. Also, Steve, this week, I'm excited about the Patreon support that we are still getting. Great. And this week, we have new support from Peyton Turnage, Chris Wolfe, Tommy Witt, and Stan Hausman. And on PayPal we got some support from Jason Swafford, So guys, thank you so much. And something that we're trying to do for our Patreon supporters is provide some exclusive content. And this week... In my conversation with Jeff Bodine, he, of course, mentioned Tim Richmond two or three times. And a couple of weeks ago, I had gotten a message on Patreon from supporter Chris Perry asking what we thought about Tim and his career and some of the things that happened to him during his career. So I thought that this week in our exclusive content that we would we would talk about Tim Richmond. Well, we could be here all day doing that. <laughs> we could do an exclusive series uh, on Tim Richmond. And absolutely. Hey, that a, might a, be an idea. Huh. A great talent, but he
1: was uh, like a shooting star. Came on strong, streaked across the sky, and was gone.
0: Listeners, patreon.com slash the Scene Vault podcast, paypal.me slash the Scene Vault podcast. Thank you so much for your help. It's what keeps this podcast going. Jeff, you raced modifieds for years up north. How did you make the decision to try your hand on the Winston Cup circuit?
2: Yeah, well, you know, I I raced a lot of modifieds up north, won a lot of races, and uh, no one was calling me. (laughs) No one was calling me from down down south to drive their late model or cup car. Yeah, and uh, darn, I'd won. I couldn't win any more up north with the modifieds. You know, of course, we went to Martinsville and places where. People were seeing me race and win. The cup guys at Martinsville, they always, a lot of them bet on me, especially the Wood brothers. <laughs> they knew I'd go out there and kick butt, but nobody was calling me. So I said, well, it's time to, and to make a move. You know, in 78, I had this great year up north in the Modifieds, and even though that was the best year ever, uh, I still said, no, you know, I want more. I want to get in the cup series. I want to get the big time. And so we packed up and moved.
0: You hooked up with Jack Beebe, and you made your first Cup start in the 1979 Daytona 500. How big a transition was that from driving Modifieds on quarter-and-half-mile tracks to a full-bodied stock car at Daytona, of all places?
2: Yeah. Well, actually, you know, I was driving for Dick Armstrong up in, uh, out of, uh, Bellingham Mass, uh, in a Modified, the number one car. You call it Big Red. Uh, he had a, uh late model they were called late models back then and ray henrik drove it some for him because ray drove his modified car once in a while and actually ray Hendricks is the one to introduce me to to rick or dick armstrong uh dick wanted to run all the races and ray didn't so uh that's how i got hooked up with dick but but i drove uh dick's late model at daytona and i think it was talladega and uh you know i said well this is what i want this is fun so I had a little experience with that, and then, uh, you know, after a little stint with Jack Beebe, it didn't last long, unfortunately, but, you know, then I went uh, back, modified racing, and actually met up with uh, Manuel Zervakis, Sonny Hutchinson, Hutchins, uh, introduced me to Emanuel, because Sonny didn't want to run all the races, and of course I did. And with Emanuel, you know, I got to run the, the late models, the full-body cars, and, and again, we... Designed, built some cars and really really fast won a lot of races uh ended up building a uh, speedway car late model and ran a few races of that and uh you know just uh, i mean a cup car speedway or cup car old oldsmobile and you know i just said this is where i want to be and uh unfortunately you know we weren't we went were a lot of late model races but we weren't moving up really like i wanted to so uh Plus, I was living in a small mini motorhome out in the back of Manuel's shop in Richmond, <laughs> Virginia, and that wasn't very nice. You know, I was away from my family. They were yeah. down in North Carolina, and I saw them on the weekends. Wow. <laughs> That's about it. I said, well, enough's enough. And then I got a ride with uh, Frank Plessinger, who owns Hagerstown Speedway. He had a late bottle team, uh, just a ragtag team, just ran part time and went to Daytona. Uh, I'm not sure what happened, ran good, but then we went to Darlington. (laughs) You know, back then we raced against all the great names. I mean, David Pearson was in the race, and the Allisons, and Earnhardt, and Gantt, and you just keep naming the names. Back then they all wanted to race Saturday and Sunday, but darn it, I ended up winning the race. (laughs) You know, I followed David around for a while, David Pearson, one of my heroes, and I said, he's you know, one of the best there, if not the best at Darlington, I said, I'll follow him around. He'll, he'll teach me how to run this track, which he did, you know, very carefully, you know, don't get in a hurry and make your moves, uh, when you know you're going to make it. And I ended up winning a race. And of course, uh, two days later after the cup race, I got a call from Cliff Stewart, who then owned a 50 car a spectrum furniture car and performance connection car. Uh, and uh he said, Hey man, boy, and he was old Cliff smokes a cigar and he talked like, Hey man, you can run if you can win at Darlington you can win anywhere. How about coming down here and let's talk? Yeah. course he was raiding right High Point and uh I was just in Pleasant Garden, just a few miles away. So I run down there, we put a deal together and our first race was uh back then we had a weekend off and before North Wilkesboro. And so my first race with him was at North Wilkesboro and Daryl Bryant was the crew chief. Of course, when I went down there to get the seat and everything, he said, hey, I know you you run that power steering on all your cars. Uh, imagine you want it on this thing. I said, yeah, that'd be great. And so we put power steering on, and that was the first time there was power steering on a cup car. And, of course, now everybody uses it. But uh, So that was a pretty cool day, and it took me a while to get there, but we finally made it
0: your 1983 stats with cliff Stewart are pretty incredible it looked like you either fell out of the race with some kind of mechanical problem or you had a top five top 10 finish how much of a roller coaster ride was that for you
2: well it was uh yeah it was tough you know carl brown was a great crew chief i uh, had great equipment good equipment pontiac grand Prix, uh uh, being our engines, Kenny Bingham and his partner were building the engines and uh, had a lot of horsepower, but every once in a while they'd break. And, uh, I mean, I'll never forget, we are leading Rockingham. We started out in the rain, so it rained out. We had to go back the next weekend. And during the break, before getting the car ready for a race, we made a little chassis adjustment, and, boy, that car took off. Man, I was just passing everybody. And I was coming up, believe it or not, to lap, lap david pearson unbelievable leading the race i was leading <laughs> yeah and the darn rear end broke yeah the ratchet in the rear end let go and i spun around bumped the wall boy i was disappointed then we went to darlington leading that race and back then uh goodyear had there was a tire shortage for a while <laughs> i don't know why but there was and uh, i'm leading just really really running good and came in for i don't know if it was the last pitch stop or close to the end and changed tires and daryl said well we had to put some used tires on uh excuse me wow Well, we don't have any new tires you know they ran out i said well what you put on well we put the first set on (laughs) (laughs) yeah i ran i ran a few laps and finally the right front blew out and hit the wall but we had that race one too so yeah up and down uh ran really really good should have won some races and then had a lot of dns uh but it got me exposure it got me uh, the 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 time on the tracks that I needed to, to keep moving up. And, of course, my next ride was, was uh, Rick Henrick.
0: Now, how did that come about?
2: Well, there again, Rick was putting a team together. And uh, Harry Hyde was going to be the crew chief. They built a car. And uh, I think Richard Petty tested it at Charlotte. And I think Dale Earnhardt tested it at Charlotte. But, you know, they had rides. and uh, So they weren't wanting to move from where they were. But Harry Hyde... Uh, had been watching me. So he called me up one day, he said, Bow down you know, Harry he had that Kentucky accent. Bow down <laughs> We're putting a team together down here, this car dealer named Rick Henry. And uh we wanna to talk to you. I said, Well yeah great. Uh yeah he's he's a car dealer, City Chevrolet, but uh he's a great guy. He'll you know honest. He'll give you more than he promises. I said, Well great. So I went down there and the story goes that we chatted and Told me what we he, he was gonna willing to do. He he was willing to run about eighteen races that year, even though I had a full time ride with Cliff Stewart. I said, no, nah, no, nah, nah, I I like to I like to be your driver. And it wasn't really because of Rick. Now I've told this story to him, so he knows it. it wasn't really because of Rick. It was because of Harry Hyde.
0: Right. Yeah. Harry yeah.
2: Hyde was a winning crew chief. Yeah. And I said, man, if I can get with this guy, you know, he can show me and help me win some races. And so I said, yeah, I'd like to. I like the deal. And Rick said, well, of course, back then, we didn't have cell phones or any of that stuff. He said, well, uh, let Harry and I talk about it, and we'll get back to you. And I said, well, Rick, do you mind if I just wait out in your waiting room for the answer? (laughs) (laughs) uh, Because, you know, you leave, and he might have called somebody else. You never know. (laughs) And so uh, he was so impressed that about five minutes later, they came out and said, hey, you got got the job. And uh, so I was Rick's first driver. Of course, the story goes, we won won our eighth race together at Martinsville. And uh this after the seventh race, Rick came to Harry and I and said, guys, I'm really, really sorry. You know, I've spent a lot more money than I thought I was gonna have to spend getting this team going. And uh, I just can't keep going. You know, I I just can't keep doing it. (laughs) I'm gonna have to shut the door. And Harry said, Well, Rick, the car's ready. The car is already we got tires? The engines in it, everything's ready to go. Won't cost you a nickel more to let us go up there and race. You know, that boat he's won a few races up there, which in modifies the late model. I'd want a bunch. And uh, so Rick said, Okay, Rick and his wife Linda were even there. They were at Green in Greensboro, North Carolina, at a church conference. He'd promised to go there. <laughs> and uh, of course, the story is we went up there and won that race and Rick has told this to past and present drivers, you know, if Jeff hadn't won that race, Jeff and Harry, it took, took a bunch of it, hadn't won that race, there wouldn't be a Hendrick Motorsports. I don't know where you guys would be driving right now. And, uh, so, I mean, that's a true story. He was going to shut the door, and boy, oh boy, he didn't want to, but he was just out of money. So thank goodness, thank God, that we went up there, and we ended up winning that race. Uh, he was telling that to Jeff Gordon and, and Earnhardt Jr. and Jimmy Johnson one day in his shop and we're doing a little TV thing and he told the story I said you guys believe that right well heck yeah Rick just told us yeah we believe it I said well don't you guys think you owe me something (laughs) 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 and and Gordon goes uh, hey the chuck will be in the mail now every time I see Jeff I said, Jeff, I haven't got that darn check yet. Oh, man, they must have lost it. I'll, I'll send you another one.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. still
2: haven't got that check.
0: <laughs> In all seriousness, how big a vindication was that Martinsville win for you personally, after everything that you'd been through, to try to make it to that level?
2: No, I don't call it vindication. It was, just, uh, it was just a natural thing for me. I'd won a lot of races there. And Mr. Earls uh, was like a second father to me. Was he really? He cool. really treated us really well. Appreciated. He appreciated all the Northerners coming down to race those races at Martinsville. And uh, we just, uh, you know, I'm not the only one. He he, he had a good relationship with it, but he, we did. And uh, so it couldn't have happened at a better racetrack. And of course, I'd won, like I said, modified and late-mile races there and had a lot of grandfather clocks. So it was, it, was, it was the right place to win. And, of course, it was the right time because... If it hadn't happened, there wouldn't be a Hendrick Motorsports. But, uh, no, it was just natural for me to go there and run good and have a chance of winning. And it really was—I mean, of course, the first win is a big deal, but I kind of expected it.
0: (laughs) You worked with Harry Hyde as your crew chief in 84 and 85. What was it like working with him?
2: Oh, it was great. I mean, you know, anyone that knew Harry Hyde, he was a character. But it was pretty neat because, you know, no computers back then. Uh, his computer was a three by five index card. He had more information on that little card than you can imagine. Uh, he had a little sharp pen, and he could put more information on that little card than anyone I ever seen. And he'd pull those cards out for Martinsville or Rockingham, wherever. And he said, "Well, hold on this is what we did." And he had a conversion because he, you know, ran. Chrysler products that had torsion bars. Yeah. So he had it converted from torsion bars to coil springs. He said, "Boat this is what we used to run here, but this is what we need in the spring." He put it in there, and you know, we ran pretty darn good. Uh, we had some engine problems, unfortunately. If you look up those years, a lot of DNFs, Sometimes it's good to be the first with somebody, and sometimes it's not as good. And you know, they were just learning how to build engines back then. And the late Randy Dorton, who ended up being a super, super engine builder he was just a kid back then like we all were and so we had some engine problems and uh but we still ran good and you know won some races and uh but working with harry was uh it was uh it was a handful
0: <laughs> i asked buddy parrot the same thing and i'll ask you what is your best harry Hyde story
2: oh well have you seen the, the movie days of thunder well that movie was about three people four people actually harry hyde was a crew chief harry hoag yeah and uh the rough tough guy was the late dale earnhardt and tom cruise's character was two drivers the late tim Richmond, you know tim was a handsome young single you like the women kind of guy and the other part was me the the guy that went up against uh the tough guy all the action on the track and the meeting in Daytona, the ice cream cone and all those things were stories that we told the writers. Yeah. And uh, so, I mean, that was, uh, I, I can't imagine. <laughs> well, I know some of the things Harry told the writers, but they couldn't use, <laughs> 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 but they, uh, they use a lot of what Harry did. The, probably the, the neatest story. And in the movie they had, uh, you know, Tim was my teammate back then with Rick. They had Harry and Tim riding out a road and, And uh, the tractor trailer they were in the back with the race cars. Well, you can't do that. Nobody does that, but in the movie they did. And, of course, they got pulled over by this so-called state trooper. That state trooper was a pretty good-looking lady. And, of course, got Tim out there and said, Hey, uh, you need to put your hands up on that side of that trailer, and I got a frisky. Of course, you know what happened after that. Well, that really didn't happen going down the road. That happened at the race shop. It was Tim's birthday. And Harry called up and hired this lovely lady to come over there and dress up as a cop and come into the shop when everybody was in there celebrating and, and give, uh, give Tim a, a search. <laughs> <And> that, <laughs> yeah. That's the kind of guy Harry was. He was, wow. just, he was crazy, but what a great guy. What a smart man.
0: For children with chronic medical conditions, Victory Junction means friends, fun, freedom. That's because we provide a medically safe environment where kids who live in a world of hospitals and doctor's visits can laugh, play, and discover all they can be, all at no cost to their families. Victory Junction inspires confidence, builds self-esteem, and changes the life of every camper who comes through our gates. Find out how you can
2: change a child's life. Go to VictoryJunction.org.
0: Now, Steve, I'm going to be completely honest with you. Before I got into the sport, my Sunday afternoon ritual was to go over to the East Steps house there in Hermitage, Tennessee, just outside Nashville, and we would watch the race together. And that was an event in and of itself. I miss that to this day. And let's just say that the East Steps, Sandy, Joe, and his dad, Joe Senior, and Joe Junior's sister, Jennifer, they all had their favorites. But they were united in one sense. They all, well, I don't know any other way to put it. They all hated. (laughs) (laughs) They all hated Jeff Bodine for no other reason, I guess, than he was from the north. From the north. Yeah. Yeah. And we were in Nashville, Tennessee. So there was that separation there. Now, what I think is interesting is the fact that once I got into the sport professionally, the people that I kind of admired... It wasn't that I didn't like them after I got into the sport professionally, but I saw them as real people and not superheroes. One in particular, but I won't go into that. (laughs) (laughs) And I also got to know Jeff and in particular Todd because he was driving in the Bush Series at that time. And Todd, he's a great guy. Absolutely. Great guy. And not once have I ever had a crossword with Jeff. So, Sandy, I know you're listening to this. For once in our NASCAR careers together, I disagree with you.
1: (laughs) Well, to be very honest with you, all three of the Bodine brothers, Brett and Jeff and Todd, were nice guys. I mean, I dealt with all three of them, and I can assure you that uh, they might have been quote-unquote Yankees. (laughs)
0: <laughs> oh, they were definitely Yankees. But there's no debating that. <laughs> they were as friendly and outgoing as they could be. In this conversation that I had with Jeff, he talked about winning a nineteen eighty-two Budweiser late model sportsman race, that's now the Xfinity series, at Darlington. And then a couple of days later, team owner Cliff Stewart calls and offers Jeff his first full time Winston Cup ride. Right. In so doing, Jeff became the very first Budweiser late model sportsman slash Bush Series slash Xfinity driver to gain notice and use that division as a stepping stone to further his career. And to me, that's what the Xfinity Series should be about.
1: Right. Bodine actually used the modified series to draw attention to himself. Up north, the modified were very, very big. And they used to come south, a race at a doubleheader with the late model sportsman circuit. At Martinsville, late-model sportsman, you know, became the Bush Series. Now, Jeff was particularly noticeable at those races in Martinsville because he was quite a talent. He, there were a lot of rough-and-tumble and really, really sharp uh, drivers in the Modified Series, and he was one of them. And he was also displayed his mechanical engineering whiz. I mean, he brought a car down there to race one year, And NASCAR said, whoa, wait a minute. What is this thing? It was so uh, different, so uh, far removed from what a modified car looked like back then that they would not let him run it. But it showed to all of us his engineering skills. So he took a lot of car technology knowledge with him as he went up the
0: line. And I think that helped him. Well, I think it obviously helped him, but his success in the modified series, you know, people didn't know a lot about that because very rarely did the modifieds run where a cup owner or a, what would now be an Xfinity owner would be able to see them. Yeah. You know, the
1: modifieds, when they came out, Martinsville was their Daytona. Yeah, that was it. Martinsville was basically it. And that's about the only real place they could have been noticed by the team owners At the time, most of whom were from the South. Not that way anymore, but most of them were.
0: And I think the consensus was probably, you know, yeah, he's a good modified driver, but what can they do in a full-body stock car? And he showed them. And he showed them at Darlington by winning that Budweiser late model sportsman race, Cliff Stewart noticed, and the rest is history. There we go. The next thing that I wanted to talk about is he gets this opportunity with this Charlotte car dealer by the name of Rick Hendrick. He didn't know what Hendrick Motorsports would become. At that time, how big a gamble do you think that was for Jeff to come on board with a team like Rick Hendricks?
1: I don't know that it was that much of a gamble. You got to remember, Rick Hendrick at this time is also taking a big gamble. He is a successful car dealer, but not, certainly not at the measure he is today. So he was taking something to gamble by getting into motorsports and forming a team. So... Here's Jeff Bodine. Hendrick knows he's a decent driver. And Bodine is looking at Hendrick as, some, as an opportunity. So the two of them got together and said, what have we got to lose? You know, let's give this thing a shot and see what happens. And I think the fact that Rick Hendrick was able to land Harry Hyde as a crew chief. That was the key. Had a lot to do with it.
0: Harry Hyde was the key to that deal. But... They go to Daytona and they finish top 10. They actually get top 10 finishes in each of their first three races. But right before the eighth race of the season, Rick Hendrick calls and says, hey, I got to pull the plug on this deal. It's kind of bleeding me dry here. And Harry Hyde, he pleaded their case and said, the car's already put together. We've got the tires. We've got everything in place. You've got nothing to lose. You won't have to spend another nickel to go to Martinsville. And what happens? Ha ha. Jeff Bodine knows that track like the back of his hand because he's raced there right. in Many Modifieds. Young. Many young. And he's also raced there in Late Model Sportsman. And everybody remembers that nineteen eighty one finish in the Modifieds with Richie Evans, where <laughs> Richie Evans is up on the wall and you right. know, all heck breaks loose after that. So what do they have to lose? Jeff goes. Wins the race.
1: That to me was a stepping stone that a lot of people didn't realize back then. That was not only a stepping stone in Jeff's career and rescuing Harry Hyde's career and furthering Rick Hendricks' career as a car owner, it led to a sponsorship. Might not have been the world's biggest sponsorship, but it got him through. And instead of seeing All Star Racing on the quarter panel of Jeff's car, now there was Northwestern Bank, based, I think, out of North Wilkesboro. So that was enough to carry them through the rest of the season and provide the spark that would become a bigger
0: Hendrick Motorsports. Finally, Jeff talked about the movie Days of Thunder, which is the greatest piece of cinematic film ever released by Hollywood. (laughs) Is there something wrong with you? (laughs) For all the knocks that it gets sometimes, and there are parts that are obviously unrealistic, but there are grains of truth throughout that movie because sure. some of the situations, some of the scenarios actually came out of conversations with Rick Hendrick and Jeff Bodine. The ice cream cone incident actually happened. Oh, yeah? Yeah, actually happened. The meeting in Daytona with Big Bill. Bill. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that happened. That actually happened yeah. with Jeff Bodine and Dale Earnhardt. Right. But Steve... The state trooper uh, scene <laughs> also happened. How about that? Yeah. I get that I can believe. I, I can believe that. Yep. And hey. who's the culprit? Harry Hyde. Yeah. <laughs> now, okay, you kind of rolled your eyes when I mentioned Days of Thunder. Huh? Top Days of Thunder. What's better than Days of Thunder what? when it comes to NASCAR?
1: Oh, when it comes to NASCAR? Well... It certainly in, isn't uh, Talladega Nights, I can tell you that.
0: Upon that, we can
1: obviously agree. I still maintain that the best soccer car racing movie made is The Last American Hero with Jeff
0: Bridges. Man, you're just saying that because it was based on Junior Johnson.
1: No, I And you
0: want to sell that. more books. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> you know, I
1: had uh, the a privilege of being on the set for a couple of uh, scenes that they were shooting at Martinsville Speedway and got to see how they did all that stuff. The reason I think that it remains the best stock car movie made is it was very accurate. It was based upon, yes, the life of Junior Johnson, who was called Junior Jackson in the movie. But a lot of the true incidents that happened in Junior's life, not only on the track but off of it, were portrayed in the film. And I knew for a fact, that they were following a script that probably they learned a lot from Junior and some other people in racing to make the film as accurate as it could have been. And Jeff Bridges is a heck of an actor.
0: I liked The Last American Hero because it used a lot of footage of Sam Ard. And I believe, wasn't the car that Junior Jackson drove, wasn't that supposed to be Sam Ard's car?
1: Yes, it was. Okay, yeah. they They mentioned Sam in the movie. And then they are standing by Sam Ard's car talking about it, and they say that the reason they were able to get it was that, and I mentioned his name, Sam Ard went to work for Goodyear and left racing, and that's how they were able to acquire the car. Okay, or now. Sam never did leave racing for Goodyear, but that was the line.
0: Okay, now ask me about my top NASCAR movie.
1: Okay, what is your top NASCAR movie? I'm afraid to hear this. Stroker Ace. Oh, God. <laughs>
0: Think about it, though. You think it's easy driving with chicken feet? Think about it, though. <laughs> the links to which sponsors will try to get their drivers to go to promote yeah. their products. That's accurate. Okay? Okay. How about a driver and a PR person maybe making goo-goo eyes at each other? That's never happened, has it? Uh, that's happened. Okay. A time or two or 12 or 20. You know, that's uh, happened. Okay. So, yeah, I believe that Stroker Ace is the most accurate NASCAR racing movie ever made well i
1: still say you're stretching a little bit but <laughs> i admit i laughed. i left all the way through stroke race it was it was a parody on the very situations you're talking about you know sponsors doing this and people making google eyes at each other and all that sort of thing but i liked it because they used a lot of uh, several Real NASCAR driver. Among them, of course, Dale Earnhardt, Neil Bonnet, Tim Richmond, and uh, Harry Gant. Harry Gant has the best line
0: in the movie. Oh hell! Here we go again. That's it. <laughs> Steve, you were on the set of Last American Hero, right? And didn't manage to get yourself in the film. <laughs> that takes true talent. I speak from firsthand experience. Yeah. Well, no, I did not have any role in the film
1: whatsoever. Oh. The only role I played was to be a reporter. And uh, I got to write some great stuff about that movie behind the scenes. One of the stories I like to tell is that I was having uh, lunch with, uh, with uh, Jeff Bridges. And uh, he's just a regular guy. I remember he was eating a piece of apple pie as I was asking him questions. And I finally asked him, well, what do you do after this? And he went, I don't know. I may never be in another movie again.
2: Hi fans, I'm Jeff
0: Bowdoin, and you're listening to the Scene Fall Podcast. Enjoy. Okay, Steve. The November 20th, 1980 issue of Grand National Scene covered the season finale at Ontario. The race was won by Benny Parsons, right. who had also won at Ontario the year before. His winnings for the day moved him to $352,360 for the season. That was the most he had ever won. In any one season during his career,
1: you know when the Winston came on board and the Winston Cup Series was created back in 1971, the total points money available to the drivers was just $150,000. Yeah, and
0: he won the 1973 championship, right. and still this 300-some odd thousand dollars that he won in 1980 was the most that he had ever won. Right in yeah. a season, they take that home now in a race in a single day. Yep. So, yeah, the sport has changed just a little bit. It was also Benny's last race for car owner MC Anderson. He was going to be replaced by ya, Yarbrough. Oh, you did know. Hey. Oh, I thought I was going to trip you up on that one. So he kind of played it a little cagey in the post-race press conference. He was asked about a rumor that was kind of making the rounds about him having a deal locked up to drive for Bud Moore in 1981. And he gave a very firm no comment. But who did Benny drive for in 1981?
1: Bud Moore. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't fooling any of us back then when he was separating from mc anderson and the room started flying that he was going to go race for bud moore and you know he made no comment about, but several of us already knew i mean that's the way it usually works if a driver to this day says when you ask him are you going to race for so and so next year and he sa- he says no
0: comment print it he's going <laughs> The race was won by Benny Parsons, and in history, that has been kind of overshadowed by the championship battle that went on in that race. Dale Earnhardt, who was in just his second year right. as a full-time Winston Cup driver, With Rod Esterlin. went into that race leading Kill Yarborough by 29 points. Now, that's set for high drama.
1: Yes, it is. You have a race where two men are separated by only 29 points. For the championship, you are going to take notice because that's a very critical race for both drivers.
0: And when you're separated by just that little amount, you cannot, you cannot, you cannot afford to make mistakes. (laughs) (laughs) But apparently,
1: (laughs) Dale could afford to make mistakes.
0: Well, he pitted too early during the first caution. He lost a lap. And spent most of the race trying to get it back. Right. Kale, on the other hand, appears headed to the win. He's right. going to go on. He's going to win this thing. It would have been his fourth championship in five years. Right. With Junior Johnson. All with Junior Johnson. That's right. So Dale made up the lost lap. On lap 151 on restart, when he went to Kell's outside, (laughs) Junior Johnson protested and said that Dale had jumped the restart, but... He was overruled. Was overruled. Now, you would think at that point that things Uh, would have been easy sailing. Oh, no.
1: Oh, no. (laughs) Another faux pas, shall we say, in a pit stop.
0: And this came very late in the race. This was on lap 183 of a 200-lap race that came in for a pit stop. And, Steve, what happened?
1: Well, it only had three lug nuts on the right rear tire. That's one thing. He ran over a jack. That's another thing. And he almost, I think, almost lost lap having to come back in, get the the lug nuts put back on. Then he sped back out there. Now he
0: was behind again. I don't think he lost lap, however. So he was black flagged, but he made it back onto the track. Somehow managed to finish fifth while Kel took third. That was the difference. That was enough to give Dale the championship.
1: Dale overcame to win the championship by a mere 19 points.
0: 19 points. Steve, how big a deal was it for a driver that early in his career to win a championship?
1: It was a very big deal. It was unheard of to win a championship. Remember, he wins the championship the year after he wins rookie of the year. Rookie of the year. I don't think that's been done ever since. I know it hasn't. And so that was a great, great big deal. And a lot of it, I think, went to creating a keen interest in Dale Earnhardt as a rising star.
0: Did people consider it kind of a fluke or was this really and truly a force to be reckoned with?
1: Well, I think it was a force to be reckoned with. And a good uh, testimony to that is Dale himself after the race. He said he couldn't blame his pit crew for anything that happened today, even though they made mistakes. He could not blame his pit crew because his pit crew did so much to get him to the point where he could win a championship. Now, think about this for a minute. You got a pit crew that's done so much for Dale over the course of the season, makes some mistakes in the last race and almost costs him the championship, but they overcame, and I think one thing that makes a strong driver-team combination is their ability to overcome adversity.
0: And think about this. His crew chief, Doug Richard, was, what, 20 years old? Maybe. 20. Yeah. 20. California. Yeah. So, and I thought it was pretty cool after the race when kind of the celebration died down a little bit. Doug told me for my book, Dell vs. Daytona, that... (laughs) He took his girlfriend for a spin around the racetrack. He did? <laughs> yes, he did. In the race car, <laughs> oh my Steve. Goodness. Not in their passenger car, in the race car. Now, Dick Beatty found out about it and fined him. I think he fined him a couple hundred bucks, but he basically got his hand slapped.
1: Well, what else could you do? The guy just wins the championship. He's ecstatic about it. And maybe taking your girlfriend on the track in the race car is not the wisest thing to do. You cannot help but admire his exuberance.
0: Steve, what happened with Ontario? Because Southern California, that's a good market, one that NASCAR has coveted for a long time. But what happened with Ontario in particular?
1: Well, I'll tell you, it was a beautiful track, a beautiful super speedway, no doubt about it. And it was located in a prime area. Let's just call it the greater Los Angeles area. Seemed to have everything going for it to be successful, but it didn't draw can't explain it. I really don't know why, but it didn't draw fans at all. They announced the attendance of the 1980 race to be somewhere in the vicinity of 41 to 42,000. And one of the uh, columnists that worked for Scene at the time stated, if you believe there are 40,000 people there, you're a blind man.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah. It was closer yeah. to 15. That was the problem. And I think the track fell into debt because it could not draw the people it needed to draw to pay its bills. So what happened was when it announced it was folding shop, that prime real estate that it was sitting on drew a lot of attention. And Chevron Oil Company was the one that came in and bought Ontario, which of course it proceeded to level to the ground.
0: Now, how far is Ontario from Fontana? It's not far. It's just a few uh, miles, isn't it? Yeah, uh,
1: it's right there. Riverside, San Bernardino, Ontario, that's sort of a triangle of cities right there. It's an easy drive.
0: Well, I know that when I covered the race out in California, we flew into the Ontario airport. Yeah. That's how close it was. That does it for this episode of the same vault podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Patreon.com slash the podcast, paypal.me slash the vault podcast. Every little bit helps you guys keep us going. And I truly do appreciate that. Also subscribe, leave us a five-star rating and a written review on iTunes that helps us out there as well. And once we get to 50, written reviews, I will give one lucky reviewer a copy of every NASCAR book I've ever written. Thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you next week.